Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law 360. I'm Jimmy Hoover. I cover the court here in Washington. And joining me from New York is co-host Natalie Rodriguez. How are you, Natalie? Jimmy, I am overwhelmed by another, like, really busy week at the court. (laughs) There was a lot of news this week, a lot of different items that we're going to have to get through on today's episode. And let's just start with the most recent, as of this morning on Thursday when we're recording, we have Justice Amy Coney Barrett's first majority opinion for the court in a case. Yeah, so we've been talking about, you know, how she's been keeping a relatively low profile at the court so far. Um, You know, she was sworn in a little over four months ago. And, you know, other than one big vote in the case uh, involving the Brooklyn Archdiocese, you know, and we haven't seen her too much of her writings, uh, although she has been an active questioner in oral arguments. Um, But now we have her first majority opinion. Yeah, I like to call it a ripping 11-page yarn on Exemption 5 of the Freedom of Information Act. So, obviously, the first opinions of justices are not the blockbusters that we tend to see towards the end of the term. But I was about know. to say, like, the rookie justices kind of have to probably get the bottom of the, the pile, right? <laughs> like, yeah, the most so, technical kind of... <laughs> a, a little technical FOIA decision um, where the court held that the government doesn't have to turn over a draft opinion of the Fish and Wildlife Service concluding that an EPA regulation that has since been revised on cooling water intake structures would jeopardize certain aquatic wildlife. This was a loss for the Sierra Club. But notably about this decision, unlike the first majority decisions of recent appointees to the court, I'm thinking about Brett Kavanaugh, Neil Gorsuch, this one was not unanimous. So what was the breakdown here? So it was a 7-2 decision with Justices Stephen Breyer and Sonia Sotomayor dissenting. They did not agree with the majority of the court in Justice Barrett's decision that this draft biological opinion from the Fish and Wildlife Service was protected by deliberative process privilege. In other words, Breyer and Sotomayor didn't feel that this opinion, this draft opinion from the FWS, concluding that this rule would have jeopardized certain aquatic wildlife, would be shielded under the Freedom of Information Act. And so they would have sided with the Sierra Club in this case. But I thought a a notable start to to Justice Amy Coney Barrett's high court career. We will it will probably not be the only decision we'll see from her uh, this term. We'll probably get some more. But it was notable that at least for now, the court couldn't give her some kind of softball unanimous opinion from the early part of the term that she could just kind of like, you know, subtly begin her high court career with. Well, I'll be interested to see what her first big dissent will be. Um, but for now, moving right along, because like we said up top, it has been a, you know, very packed week, uh, including several big oral arguments uh, that have been on our radar. One of those uh, was uh, involves the a challenge to the structure of the Patent Trial and Appeals Board. And we're going to have senior patent reporter Danny Cass on later to really kind of help us dig down into that one. Um, the other one that really has been on our radar was uh, essentially the biggest challenge to the Voting Rights Act that we've seen before the Supreme Court in in some years. That's right. Most people know about the 2013 Supreme Court decision that was said to have gutted the Voting Rights Act's kind of pre-clearance section. And this was the section that told certain states with a history of 
voter suppression that before they changed their voting laws, they had to essentially get pre-clearance from the federal government. The court did away with that. Well, that left intact this one section of the Voting Rights Act, Section 2, and that's a kind of an equally huge part of this big Civil Rights Act, Civil Rights Era law, which basically gives voters the ability to challenge discriminatory uh, voting regulations. And so that section is kind of the one that's at issue in Tuesday's case. It's a case called Brnovich versus the DNC. Um, it involves a challenge to two Arizona Voting regulations, the Ninth Circuit had held discriminated against Native American, Hispanic, and African American voters and thus violated um, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And now the justices are set to kind of clarify the scope of this very important piece of that uh, voting rights legislation and really determining what is and what isn't a violation of Section 2. So, so just a brief background, um, the two rules uh, coming out of Arizona that are at stake here are um, one that makes it a felony for anyone other than a family member or household member or caregiver to turn in an, an individual's early ballot. Um, and uh, a second that also uh, dealt with out-of-precinct voting, um, essentially restricting out-of-precinct voting. So those two rules have um, been challenged for having this disparate impact on minority communities, uh, on Native Americans, Hispanic and African Americans uh, in the state. Um, so essentially before the court this week is, you know, an arguments about, you know, how do you go about showing these regulations violate the Voting Rights Act? That's right. And you mentioned that um, the Democrats had alleged in the Ninth Circuit agreed that these two particular um, voting regulations, limiting out-of-precinct voting and making ballot collection essentially a felony, um, that those had a disparate impact on minority voters who were more than likely to use those two aspects of voting. Um, but the question now before the court is whether it really has to do with a disparate impact or whether there's some other test. So the Arizona Republican Party and indeed the Arizona Attorney General say, you know, just because this causes a disparate impact on minority voters, that doesn't necessarily mean that it violates Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. In fact, Section 2 only kicks into play when minority voters are deprived an equal opportunity to vote. And so that is the test that they've proposed that the Supreme Court adopts. Of course, Democrats and voting rights groups say that that would essentially render toothless Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act and make it incredibly hard to challenge restrictions that have these impacts on minority voters when maybe on their face, they're facially neutral, racially neutral. And we had kind of Chief Justice Roberts pushing back on uh, a Republican lawyer, Michael Carvin, who had adopted, who is urging the court to adopt this kind of equal opportunity test. You talk about um, the concern being that the analysis would be driven to racial proportionality uh, under um, the respondent's approach. Um, now, I understand the uh, concerns about that when you're talking about uh, districting, but why is, that, why is that a bad thing when you're talking about electoral procedures? Well, what it means is that any neutral system must be changed 
in order to maximize minority voting strength, regardless of how strong the justification is. Things that provide no unfairness at all to minorities, uh, you must rejigger every aspect of the time, place, and manner, from registration to election day to early voting, in order to maximize uh, minorities' participation. Why is that bad? Because it's the same kind of race-conscious activity of subordinating well, is neutral it, is it really is it maximizing participation or or equalizing it? In other words, uh, that only comes up when you have disparate results. Um, and, and why should there be disparate results if, if, if you can avoid them? So that was a key moment, obviously, in, in, in the arguments on Tuesday. Um, you know, look, the crux of this case is Democrats suing to challenge these regulations, Republicans defending these regulations. But I think another interesting moment really came later when Justice Amy Coney Barrett wanted to know what the Republican Party's stake was, which led to a frankly really telling exchange with Michael Carvin. Mr. Carvin, let me move on to a different question. I'm interested in knowing why the RNC is in the case. So, you know, the DNC had standing and the district court said that it had standing to challenge the out-of-precinct policy because the policy placed a greater imperative on Democratic organizations to educate their voters and because the policy harmed its members who would have voted out of precinct. What's the interest of the Arizona RNC here in keeping, say, the out-of-precinct uh, um, voter dis- ballot disqualification rules on the books? Because it puts us at a competitive disadvantage relative to Democrats. Politics is a zero-sum game. And every uh, extra vote they get through unlawful interpretations of Section 2 hurts us. It's the difference between winning an election 50 to 49 and losing okay, an election Okay, thank you. My time is up. <laughs> that was a, kind of, a, a, as you said, a telling moment that kind of went viral a little bit on Twitter which I'm, sur- I'm sure the justices are pretty happy about their oral argument exchanges going viral with the in the wake of these live-streamed um, hearings. But I, I think in fairness to Carvin, I, I think that was more of a legal answer to establish why the Republican Party had standing in the case to defend um, these regulations. But they've obviously also made the argument, whether you believe it or not, that these are um, ballot integrity measures to stamp down, stamp out fraud in the electoral process, um, and that if they happen to have a disparate impact on minority voters, that that that's not necessarily the intent of the law. And I, that was a, I mean, that was an argument that found some sympathies uh, in you know various members of the court on Tuesday who you know pressed attorneys for the Democratic National Committee. Um, defending the rules about, you know, why can't Arizona adopt these um, ballot integrity measures where they probably exist in, you know, several other states in the country? And in particular, Justice Neil Gorsuch asked that line of questions. Counsel, I guess it's, I'm just asking a pretty simple question. You, you, you agree that some prophylactics are allowed and that this addresses a prophylactic issue that uh, other states have found to be problematic and, and a Blue Ribbon Commission found to be problematic. How, how much more evident, what more concretely would you require? Your Honor, what I'm saying is Arizona already has a law. Preventing I understand what you've said. I'm asking how much more would you require before Arizona could do, do this? Or are you saying it could never do this? I am saying that criminalizing non-fraudulent ballot collection uh, simply is, does not get at the state's interest in preventing fraud. And 
as with respect to prophylactic restrictions, the court's inquiry should be at least as searching for restrictions on the ability to participate in the political process through voting as it is for restrictions on the political process through spending money. Thank you. So that was Jessica Ring Amundsen, an attorney from Jenner and Block, who's representing the Democratic Arizona Secretary of State, Katie Hobbs, in opposition um, to these laws. So you really have this kind of tension between, you know, on the one hand, whether Arizona should be allowed to adopt ballot integrity measures, what they deem ballot integrity measures um, that might have a disparate impact on certain minority voters, and or whether that disparate impact should, in fact, you know, kind of disqualify the laws under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. It's a pretty complicated case. You know, uh, I think at one point, Justice Kagan was kind of confused as to, you know, just how different really are the tests that these two sides are proposing. And I think we'll probably get a better idea when the court finally hands down its ruling, which could probably come sometime um, later in the term before the summer recess, as this seems to be one that'll probably spark some pretty notable opinions from the court, to say the least. So let's take a moment after that fairly technical breakdown uh, to just take a deep breath and reset our heads because we're about to dig into yet another technical case that dominated the court and headlines this week. That's right. And now joining us to talk about the big case that had the patent world on the edge of their seat on Monday, we have on Law 360's senior patent reporter, Danny Cass. Welcome to the show, Danny. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Thanks for having me. So on Tuesday, the court heard oral arguments in three consolidated cases captioned United States versus Arthrex, where the justices kind of debated whether judges on the patent trial and appeal board are constitutionally appointed. Now, before we get to that specific legal question, can you tell us just a bit, what is the PTAB and, you know, why should we all care about it? So the PTAB is a part of the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. It was created about 10 years ago under the America Invents Act, and it's a place where you can go and challenge other people's or other companies' patents. And it was meant to be a much cheaper and faster alternative to district court litigation. And over its first couple of years, it was invalidating patents at a very high rate to the point where a chief judge of the federal circuit called it a death squad, which is a name that's followed it quite closely throughout the years. And over, the la- <laughs> and over the last few years, there have been a couple of reforms instituted at the board that have made it so there's been less of un- less invalidations and it's starting to be considered by patent owners to be a bit more fair, but there it's still a very controversial forum. Okay, so so it sounds like, you know, it's been around for a while and doing business, you know, for, for many years now. Why do why is it suddenly in front of the Supreme Court? Um, you know, why are, why are the justices suddenly interested in whether it's constitutionally structured? And what exactly happened to get this specific case to the court? So this is actually the sixth time that the Patent Trial and Appeal Board has been before the Supreme Court since it was founded a decade ago. Most of those challenges have been really small questions about how PTAB reviews are done, although there was one prior Um, full-on is this board constitutional challenge that was not successful. In this case, what you have is two medical device companies, Smith & Nephew and Arthrex. And Smith & Nephew challenged Arthrex's suture patent at the PTAB and was successful. When Arthrex appealed that decision to the federal circuit, it focused its appeal on the idea that the lower decision was not legal because the judges were not properly appointed. Essentially, Arthrex was saying that 
the judges had too much power for for people who hadn't been nominated by the president and then confirmed by the Senate to really wield. And the federal circuit agreed and they vacated Arthrex's loss and sent it back to the PTAB for a redo based on a panel that had been, in their minds, now constitutionally appointed. And they fixed that defect by getting rid of some tenure protections for the judges and then saying, okay, now you're officially properly appointed. So this is where it gets kind of interesting, right? Because the federal circuit comes out with this decision saying that the judges aren't constitutionally appointed, but no one's really satisfied with this ruling, right? Because Arthrex wants them to go a step further and is now asking the Supreme Court to go a step further. Can you just kind of explain where we are now and what the party's hopes and dreams are for what the Supreme Court should do? Sure. So as you mentioned earlier, there's this case is actually three separate appeals. What you have is the government and Smith and Nephew appealing the federal circuit's decision that the judges are not properly appointed because they believe that there's always been enough oversight from the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office director to be legal. And then you have Arthrex saying that, you know, you the federal circuit ruled right on the constitutionality issue, but their fix is just going to lead to a whole lot of... Um, the USPTO director having too much political sway over how decisions are made because these judges no longer have job security to be unbiased in their jobs. And so what Arthrex is saying is that it's really up to Congress to decide what to do now. So the Supreme Court should get rid of the PTAB, should get rid of interparties reviews, and instead um, let Congress decide how to fix this problem. On Monday, where did the justice seem to be leaning uh, among those three arguments, essentially? Uh, so, so the majority of the justices and the most vocal ones in particular uh, really seem to question the fact that there's enough supervision at the PTAB. They seem to be leaning towards the idea that the director should have the ability to unilaterally overturn decisions in order to to be considered to have enough supervision over the judges. Uh, they didn't appear like they were going to adopt how the federal circuit decided to fix the problem. Instead of getting rid of tenure protections, they were looking to sever other parts of the Patent Act, which would make it so that the USPTO director could have more unilateral authority over the decisions of the administrative patent judges. So no throwing the board out with the bathwater, essentially, right? Uh, probably not. There, uh, <laughs> Justice Barrett did seem to suggest that maybe Congress should have a little bit more say here, but it didn't seem to be the opinion of the Supreme Court as a whole. Were there any moments from the arguments that kind of stood out to you that maybe you weren't expecting? Because I know you've been watching these cases so closely. Um, is there anything that came up? There was nothing that was particularly unexpected. I think maybe people expected uh, there to be a little bit more support behind the idea that the judges were already constitutionally appointed than there actually ended up being. It was really just Justice uh, Sotomayor that was really supportive of that decision. Uh, or supportive of that argument, the rest seemed to really question it. Uh, one line that got a lot of attention just because it was um, really visual is that when Justice Gorsuch was asking kind of how to take apart the Patent Act and what to sever in order to, to make things legal, you had Arthrex's attorney saying, it's not a surgical solution, that's vivisection. So that was, <laughs> that was a dark moment. <laughs> They, everyone's wow. got medical devices on the brain, I guess, in this exactly. uh, particular. But it's just, it's funny because it, it seems like in so many cases like this where the justices seem to be agreeing on the finer legal points about constitutionality 
and interpreting the Constitution when it comes to the structure of some of these things. The the big debate is in the is in the relief that they're eventually the remedy that they're eventually going to adopt. And I suspect that's where we're at now, right? Where we're just kind of watching what the court is going to act, how it's going to essentially reconcile the unlawfulness with what they're actually going to do on paper. That seems to be it. Uh, they could uh, they could surely surprise us and decide that they were constitutional that the judges were constitutionally appointed to start with. But just based on the tone of the arguments, my guess is that we're watching to see what their remedy is going to be. And they're leaning toward, they appeared to be leaning towards it being something really narrow, something that causes the least amount of disruption. So not exactly a death squad for the death squad, <laughs> although I know that name has been pushed back on a, a little bit, right, over the years. It has. And yeah, I think you're right. Well, thanks, Danny, for joining us to explain this pretty complicated but very important and interesting case. We appreciate having you on the show. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Okay, so this has been uh, like whirlwinds of an episode, um, and we don't have much time, but I just want to like also touch on the fact that this week the court uh, granted cert in a, a fairly significant case involving Puerto Rico that questions whether supplemental security income benefits can be extended to those living in U.S. territories, including Puerto Rico. Um, it's a fairly significant case in that it's it, it's seeking essentially to overturn a Supreme Court precedent on the same issue and could have some fairly significant ramifications for residents in U.S. territories. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to when this case comes for oral arguments next term as it'll be the kind of the latest case where the justices are going, kind of trying to wrestle with the Puerto Rico's kind of individual and unique relationship with the states. And this one relates to whether or not they can be excluded from this um, benefits program under the Constitution and under the Equal Protection Clause because I understand it involves like a New York resident who moved to Puerto Rico and then was later sued for restitution for benefits that he continued to collect under the program. But in any event, um, that's one we'll definitely be looking out for. But we're not going to get into too much more about it because uh, we're going to go easy on the listener who's had kind of a fire hose of information <laughs> come at them uh, during this episode. But it was fun, right? Definitely. And I'm looking forward to doing it again next week. Absolutely. Well, thanks, Natalie, and thanks to our listeners for tuning in. We'd like to thank our producers and editors, Stephen Trader and Danielle Smith, our executive producer, Amber McKinney, and our special guests, Danny Cass, and contributing reporters this week, Andrew Wesney and Carolina Bolado. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law360 in the term. Thanks for listening. And oh, please write us a review. It's been an episode. <laughs>